so very much had the the popular opinion of a very specialized growth marketing team who spent all of their days, you know, using hardcore SEO, PPC, SEM, um, social media marketing, like the whole shebang to try and, and sell card machines and didn't spend too much time trying to think about the long-term, the three-year or five-year horizon and to build long-term brand love. Um, and we felt that we were falling into this trap of being too short-sighted actually. And although the metrics were looking good on a monthly basis, we really believed and you know, increasingly believe that the role of brand is where the real differentiation lies in the long term. And that the core job of a brand team is to build a really strong competitive moat around yourself so that if competitors do come in with a really like low price product or some like fantastic promotion or some campaign, you know, you're not going to feel the effects of that. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify, to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, we talk to Matt Brownell, Head of Brand and Communications at Yoko. Yoko is an African technology company that builds tools and services to help small businesses get paid. Matt kicked off his career as a consultant at Accenture, moving on to FIFA to help them during the 2010 World Cup. His next challenge was to lead the strategy and innovation at SAB Miller on the Castle brand until he ultimately joined the team at Yoko. We talk about how Yoko is making big waves on a small budget, how sharing customers' stories and listening to them really changed the game for them, how to make great work with an internal team and using agencies properly, and how transparency has been critical in their brand success. Enjoy. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Matt. I really, really appreciate it. What a pleasure. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation. So I suppose as, as my first question to you, you know, you, you're in a, a financial services or a fintech business, but you're the head of brand. Um, how did a business like Yoko end up even with a position like head of brand? And, and how did you find yourself in that position? Yeah, interesting. I suppose... Um... The short story here was that a couple of years ago, the head of brand position didn't exist. And in fact, there was, there was no brand team. Um, Yoko and, you know, in the startup phase that they were at, and in many respects, we still at, um, the, the sort of mentality is usually growth hacking. It's um, performance marketing. You know, we are a business that sells the vast majority of our products uh, in an e-commerce format so, and use digital marketing to do that. So very much had the, the popular opinion of 
a very specialized growth marketing team who spent all of their days, you know, using hardcore SEO, PPC, SEM, um, social media marketing, like the whole shebang to try and, and sell card machines and didn't spend too much time trying to think about the long-term, the three-year or five-year horizon and to build long-term brand love. Um, and we felt that we were falling into this trap of being too short-sighted actually. And although the metrics were looking good on a monthly basis, we really believed and you know, increasingly believe that the role of brand is where the real differentiation lies in the long term. And that the core job of a brand team is to build a really strong competitive moat around yourself so that if competitors do come in with a really like low price product or some like fantastic promotion or some campaign, you know, you're not going to feel the effects of that um, because you have a moat and you have really loyal users and advocates and brand love. So we split the team, and that's what it boiled down to, is that the growth team was split into two, uh, short-term focused growth marketing and then long-term focused brand marketing. And at that point, I was, I was asked to, to head up the brand team and to build it up. And two years later, that's where we're at. So, I mean, I think that's very interesting because I, I, you know, I'm a believer in, in digital marketing and, and performance marketing, but I think it's become quite a, like a one trick pony. So every company believes like if we're doing this, we're kind of doing enough. And I, I love that the, the leadership at Yoko saw, saw that gap and, and actually addressed it because I think it is, you know, I think you, you framed it very well. It's short term, you know, the, 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 growth hacking and the performance marketing is very short term because as soon as you turn it off, it stops. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the brand is what's going to start pulling people and, 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 you know, getting people to come in on their own in the, the long term. And growth marketing is, it's very logic based. So, you know, everything is about the numbers. Everything is about, you know, just turning that dial just a tiny bit more and reducing your custom acquisition cost just a little bit more. But there, it's usually not combined with creatives and it's usually combined with a bunch of scientists and you know scientists can only take you so far if you don't have that creative um input and that strong creative bent like you will lose the magic and then you'll become all about the logic and the logic is uh well it's replicatable that's the truth mm. whereas magic is really hard to replicate um and you can get disproportionate long-term advantage from a really solid combination of magic and logic. And I really believe you need those two things working together because, I mean, I think that good, crea good creativity is good business. Um, but at the same time, you know, you've got to have the scientists in the mix that help you uh, really like guide you in terms of the good stuff that is or isn't working and where to double down and where to pull back on. So it's that combo which is so important to me. Mm. It's almost like the creative leads and the 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 science, you know, the scientists then kind of analyze what's what's working and what's not and kind of feedback as a as a loop. Yeah. Exactly. I think that is that is generally the better model of the two. Um, but you know, good ideas can also come from everywhere. And I'm I'm a firm believer of that. Like there is what you've got to be careful of is you don't put too much um, emphasis on this is how 
you know, creativity is done or this is, this is how we ideate, you know. Actually, I've always found that uh, the best ideas are certainly never your first idea and it's often coming from very unexpected places. But it's about creating an environment for me which is more important where strong creativity is given a lot of love. And it's not an environment which is so often the case in big corporates where creativity is actually squashed right at the start, you know, through approval processes and people who are a little bit scared and, you know, and generally senior leadership who doesn't believe in the power of, of creativity. Um, and I think that's the huge bonus of Yoko is that the founders are the ones that are pushing us the hardest always. Uh, there's never been an occasion where I've gone to them with an idea and they've been, oh, no, that's too bold. They're always the one that says, like, oh, you know, you should dial that one up a little bit more. And that's, you know, mm. that's, that's absolute magic position for me to be in as a, as, a, as a head of brand. I like that. I mean, I suppose no, no good ideas survive too many meetings. <laughs> they always yeah. get watered down eventually. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I, love the, I, love, I love the phrase, a, a camel is just a horse made by committee, right? And that's, <laughs> that's the truth, man. If you have too many people... <laughs> trying to like massage your idea into something which is which is okay which is like which is going to like approve like everyone's going to be approved of your shareholders are going to approve it and your and your leaders are going to approve it like it's going to be a bad idea by the end of it you do need to have you know a, a lot of autonomy in the creative space otherwise it's going to get watered down now now you did quite a like a big shift in the way yoko was communicating in your your first sort of year or two at, at yoko like what can you talk a little bit about how you shifted the way you were talking um, about the brand and, and what that shift looked like? Yeah, I think that, you know, there was a realization for me uh, early on in this process that the real gold that we had at Yoko was our customers' stories, not our own story. Our story was interesting. It was a story of a tech brand that was creating access to services and technology, which previously were really, really only the few could get access to. So there was a fantastic democratization story going on. But actually, the real nuggets of gold lay in what impact some of that technology was having on our customers. And even more so when you dug deeper there, the incredible richness that lived in the small business and does live in the sector, the small business sector in South Africa, of amazing people doing amazing things on a daily basis. And for us, it was quickly became obvious that our marketing strategy was just about becoming the loud hailer for their stories, not our own stories. So if everything we did was to shine a light on the incredible stories that were coming out of small business South Africa, then in the long run, you know, that would come back to us in spades uh, as a brand because we were simply playing a platform role really of saying everyone, hey guys, look at this. There's amazing stuff and no one is telling the story. There's, there's, I've, I've just, it blows my brain that I can't think of anyone else in South Africa that is actually shining a light on this sector. And the sector is depending on what stats you believe, is like more than 50% of GDP. It's 90% of employment. Like it is the most important sector in South Africa, yet it doesn't have a voice. It's got, it's got almost no one 
that's championing small business in South Africa. And for us, that became our role. Very early on, we realized that's got to be our role. You know, we don't, we, we, you know, we just, all we do is shine a light on the stuff that's happening out there. Um, and our tagline is let's grow, but that's really bought on the fact that our success is just intricately linked to small business success. So if small business grows, we end up growing. And uh, therefore, you know, one way or another, we're in bed together. So, you know, we must tell each other stories. Now, how did you how do you manage that mix? Like, what is the, the like? How much do you talk about other people or your customers, and how much do you talk about yourself? Because ultimately, you do need to sell a product. Just, you know, you need to close that loop at the end, or else you're just uh, a storyteller. You're not uh, a company. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. You know, so I mean, I uh, we talk about an eighty twenty mix where we talk about ourselves twenty percent of the time and our customers eighty percent of the time. It's not a hard and fast rule. That's kind of a, a mindset more than anything. It just sets it sets the guardrails of guys. This is our job. Our job is not to tell our own story. Actually, in particular channels, we tell our own stories. So if we're talking about, for example, a public relations style channel, like that channel's more about us than it is about small business and our customers. But generally across our core channels, whether it's whether it's you know blog, websites, social media, etc., we tend to make sure like there's an 80-20 mix going on there. Um, I've you know I like I always use the term like it's got to have a bit of sausage and a bit of sizzle. So like sausage is your product. Like your product's got to come in in the right places. Um, but the sizzle is the emotional stuff. It's the storytelling. It's the stuff that people remember. And it's the stuff that over a long term, you know, gets you that emotional connection. So you shouldn't have all sizzle without some of that product sausage. But at the at the same time, I think, you know, in a br- the, the, the job of brand building is is on the sizzle side. It's you know, it's been proven a million times before that people respond to emotional content and that's what they do remember. So we have to be memorable, otherwise yeah, I mean, what are we doing? No, I love that. I think it's 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 not just true for Yoko. I think every company that's that's got an audience should be talking about them. I think you know what you do is ultimately for someone else. Like if you in in business, like you providing a service or a product or something to someone else, and when you talking, you should be talking about what you do for them and not talking about how amazing and wonderful you are because it doesn't it almost forces people to have to make that leap themselves that you need to almost make that leap for them and then it becomes very easy for them to to choose the sausage to um steal your analogy it has always surprised me that less people do this you know it's um i guess it's not that surprising in like financial services where sometimes those stories are a little bit harder to grasp. Although, to be honest, they're not that they're not that hard to find amazing stories. You just got to look, and you just got to like, you just got to have good relationships with your customers. I think that's what it boils down to: is not enough people, whether it's small, medium, or big business, spend enough time with an incredibly customer-centric hat on all day long. That's what we do at Joker. Like, we obsess over our customers. We have great relationships. We talk to them constantly. We survey them all the time. But I mean, really, we talk. Like, and it's not just about sending some kind of email survey. I think the, the concept of having a strong community of customers who are at the center of that community and can become your evangelists over time as well, and you have the ability to have two-way conversations all the time, 
is absolutely critical for both brand building, but also just building your business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think enough people put enough attention on this space. It's like how to build, nurture, grow a community of customers over time. And you know, one of the best ways to do that is to just start becoming the platform for their stories. Because as your platforms get bigger and bigger, as we've hit, you know, getting close to 100,000 customers now, you know, that kind of number, then you start getting like a real network style effect out of that. It's a, your mm. platforms become very big. Our social media voice is now quite disproportionate. So we can now like add real disproportionate value to their lives as well. Yeah, I think it is, you know, it's interesting thinking in a community, like as a word is having a bit of a, a, a time in the sun and everyone's talking about how they create communities. But I know you come from from SAB, um, you know, and SAB spends a lot of money and resource on speaking to people all the time. Um, and what I find interesting is that at Yoko, by having that engaged audience and by talking to those people you you ultimately are getting that same like a similar version of that but you're not having to pay for it in terms of having to pay to put people in a room and having to survey and having to have these researchers doing all that work there is something really interesting about asking people what they want and then listening when they they respond back because i think if people know they're going to be heard and know that you actually care about what their needs are and potentially you might shift your product or build something for them that fixes that. They're going to be more likely to give you loyalty and input and, and in, like information. And, and then also I think a bit of leeway if you get it wrong, you know, so if you're trying something new and it's not flawless the first time, they're going to be like, Oh, well, I see this is great and I see where you're going, but I think you could try these four or five things that would potentially make it, make it a home run. Yeah, so true. And I think um, the beauty of technology is that you do have this ability to have, you know, short cycle, rapid feedback and product improvements. I mean, you can never separate product from brand, right? I mean, if, you know, the product is the brand in many respects for a technology company. And, you know, you can have the the most loved brand in the world, but if the product doesn't perform, you're not going to last in the long run. So the same way that we talk to customers all the time to help build our brand, most of the talking is done around product improvements. And and with tech, that's beautiful, right? We can release a new version of our app and fix 20 problems, you know, in the space of a month. And that kind of thing is hugely satisfying, I think, in, in like the bi-directional conversations which happen there because customers can see like, wow, you know, actually really did listen. Like that fix has now been done, that bug's been fixed the way that this app works is just it's a, the UX is just a bit better, so it's it's a constant uh, like really loop which starts happening with our customers, which is very empowering for for both sides. Now you did something quite bold during the the first sort of couple of weeks of the lockdown is releasing all of your public data, um, you know, in the form of the the COVID tracker. Like tell tell me a little bit about that and and why you why you did it. Yeah, so for a few reasons. The first reason was that we were a bit pissed off, to be honest, because we realized quickly that the decision makers in this country had no access to data to make good decisions. 
you know, COVID was such a rapidly um, changing environment on a daily basis. I mean, I'm sure you you know what it felt like in those first few weeks of COVID. It felt like every day we were being hit by a new like seismic shift, you know, and constantly things were changing. And we realized in the first couple of weeks that, wow, you know, there's just no economic data being shared. Everything is uh, the latest uh, infection rates, et cetera, but no economic data. And we, we, could, we sat there and we watched the lights go off on our transaction data. And we were sitting there at one point, and actually this started in a very typical way. We just tweeted a graph, like literally like a very like hacked, no beautiful design. It was a graph showing our transaction data dropping by 92% overnight, boom, as we entered level five. And that graph went a little crazy. Like it suddenly got shared all over the place. It had hundreds of retweets. And we were like, wow, actually what's interesting is that people clearly, although there's an information overload going on, there's very few sources that can give you a true sense of the impact of what the lockdown's doing on the economy. So we said, well, let's take that a step further and got the data scientists involved. And this is actually a classic uh, example of a project that like, it came from like a little experiment and then it was driven by a brand team and then really beautifully executed by a data team. So the data scientists got involved. They came up with a methodology we decided to just have this transparent approach from COVID on day one. We started off by uh, literally like two days after lo- level five lockdown, we uh, sent out a video from our, from our founder, Kotleko, that said like, quite simply, like, guys, we don't have any answers right now. We would love to help co-create with you, our customers, what solutions you need um, and how your business is changing as we speak. And we got so much great feedback back that we actually started amending some products quite immediate, quite straight away. And the one thing that did come back in that process as well was like, well, we actually want to know how other people are doing in our industry across the country. Like what are, what are their numbers looking like? This was like as, as, as COVID was progressing. So we said very early on, like, let's be very transparent with our data. Let's like, let's do something which we actually haven't done before, which is like, we take everyone's data, we anonymize it, and we make it available by industry, by geography. So people can really dig into it and start using it for themselves. So it was for our customers and for decision makers across the country. And we created this recovery dashboard and launched it in the space of a couple of weeks. And it's been uh, incredibly well used. I mean, I think it's exceeded our expectations in terms of, the number of uh, messages I get on a weekly basis about various forums and formats and governments been using it, by the way, I've seen it in government presentations mm-hmm. is exactly what we wanted to happen. Like, and I have no idea if this thing has impacted any kind of decision-making. I don't know. But what I do know is that it's been uh, broadly used in exactly the way we wanted it to be used was to like have a bit of a voice for small business again, like, so biz business, big business in this country has a pretty loud voice, but it was great to, be able to say like, hey, guys, we're down to 20%. Hey, we're up to 30. Like there's a little bit of life coming back here. Hey, we're up to 40% mm-hmm. now. This is looking a bit better. Um, and then by industry as well, it's been great because, you know, we, we were punting hard the need to open things up for the health and beauty industry because we saw how and what a terrible state they were at and, uh, and stuff did open up. So I'll never know what the impact was on the greater scheme of things, but it felt good for us to do. And I think what's been interesting about it now is now our philosophy towards transparency has doubled down on. Like we want to be incredibly transparent going forward. We are a trusted financial services brand, so we will look after data 
better than anyone else in the country. I think our, our, some of our data and fraud management is some of the best in the country. But we will make data available in an anonymized manner when it can be helped used for decision making. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it was such a simple, such a simple thought executed so well. Um, I never thought about what it would be like. Just trying to know, like how well you're doing compared to other people because I think a huge part of the entrepreneurs that I know during this time there was a lot of kind of ego bashing you know you you're kind of like I didn't see this coming how could I not have prepared for this I didn't build up the financial cushion that I needed but just hearing other people's stories and seeing how other people are doing you start to feel like okay maybe I'm not the the lone idiot who made the massive mistake that this is actually bigger than bigger than just me um, and I'm part yeah. of part of something larger than, than than me yeah and I mean you said it right like communities almost had a bit of a time in the sun over COVID but it is very true I think very early on in the game like the key piece of feedback that we got uh, besides like hey build us products that we can still sell online which was like the number one thing the second thing was like hey connect us with each other because um, we're feeling a little lost here and yeah, a small business can be an incredibly lonely game. You know, it just you 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 have the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're the CEO, the CIO, the CFO. You're everything, and um, it's incredibly important for we've we always punt the need for small business owners to have strong connected networks, mm-hmm. which include mentors. Because yeah, you need someone to also like call BS on you, uh, but at the same time to also be like, hey. <laughs> We're all in this thing together, guys. Like uh, everyone's muddling our way through it, you know. Now, now, what is this? You know, the, the approach that you've done here. Yeah, so, so you know, Yoko was clever enough to actually build a brand team and take a bit of a long view, and you managed to convince them to flip the narrative instead of talking about themselves and to start talking about the people that you serve, and kind of being quite transparent with your data and your thinking and sharing and connecting people what has this done for the growth of the company like what has this done because you know quite a few people believe that being secretive with your data is going to help you get a competitive edge and you know pushing yourself hard is going to actually ultimately let you grow like what is what has happened to the growth of yoko over the time you've been there um i got there when when we had about ten thousand customers um but growth was growing like the clappers back then. Eh? Like, you know, it's been uh, in fairly like hyper growth drive um, for about four years, three and a half to four years now. And I got there at the right time. So like, I can take zero credibility for anything. But it's, it's certainly now, I mean, it's, we're, we're, we're close to 100,000 now. Um, uh, is there a credit for anything? Sorry, credibility, goodness. Um, so it's been like really solid month-to-month growth all the way through, and yeah, driven by like just a, a really great mix of like excellent products, um, absolute customer centricity on every area of the business, great data and insights to help us drive things, and then like a really good acquisition engine uh, across growth and brand and, and great customer service. You know, I think a lot of times people underestimate, again, like the incredible value of just, just being exceptionally good at customer service. It's such an underutilized um, lever in the south african context south africans just expect poor customer service particularly in financial services actually and our customer service has always been one of the things that keeps people with us and you know we're particularly good at it so 
it's a big team nowadays. I mean, we have you know more than 100 people, 110 or so people. So it's a pretty big company. Um, and yeah, the the whole mix has worked really well. So it's we we're continuing to grow at faster rates year on year, which is really great to see. Even though we've got you know a really substantial base nowadays. That's that's so good to hear. I mean, I've actually got a story to share. My my mother had a retail store for a long time, and I can actually remember her hate for her POS, not her POS, her um, speed points. Yeah. Like the pain, it never worked. Like she absolutely hated that thing. And and I know a few people who are Yoko customers and they're actually fairly passionate about that tiny little device. It's, you know, it, it obviously serves them quite well. Yeah, it's great that people are passionate about a card machine, hey. But I mean, it is so much more than a card machine. It really, really is. That's not just a. That's just not not just a marketing line. Um, what what really like the technology that drives behind, that really drives that company is is baked into the product itself. Uh, but it is so much more. It's this little ecosystem that you get into, which includes online payments, in-person payments, a point of sale to run your store, access to capital, advances. Uh, it's in this like community and knowledge, so it's incredible that something as simple as a card machine, when you really pull it apart, can be your entry point into something which is just so much more for a small business owner. Mm-hmm. And it's taken a lot of people. You know, eighty percent of our customers had never accepted card before, so they were cash only businesses. And when you take people from what's effectively the dark economy of you know, hard cash notes being passed over a counter to a digital payments system where there's a record and you have, you know, record of sales going back month after month. You know, you're taking, you're giving people a digital footprint, which is hugely powerful and empowering in the long run. Like digital footprints allow you access to tons of services and tools, which you wouldn't have if you were just a cash-based business. So it's, a, it's an empowering little thing, actually. And, uh, and I think that's why people love it. I also like, I mean, I, I like that you've taken a slightly higher, well, not higher is the wrong word, but, you know, there's there's almost a philosophy around the product, you know, so the product's at the core of it, but there's a lot of thinking that goes around that. And, and I think it's clever because ultimately your success is a trickle down of your customer's success. So the better people do, the better you, obviously you can grow by adding new customers, but I think your fastest growth is going to come from people who increase their revenue and ultimately yes. put more transactions through your machines. And then you make, you make more money for providing the service that you do. Yes, so I think exactly. it is that that whole, whole client thinking is such a powerful thing and will probably stand you and the brand really well in, in the long term. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's extremely purpose-driven business. I mean, we are, constantly constantly trying to find ways to help small businesses to grow and for us it's about this concept of open commerce how do you democratize and open up a whole part of the economy which was previously largely excluded and ignored by big financial institutions and say you guys are worth it you are worth it individually collectively we are going to spend our days passionately trying to figure out solutions for the problems that you have always provide you with better technology and tools, really like to try and get you to grow because you are so important. Whereas for 30 years, the South African banking system said like, those guys are not worth it. They are small businesses with, you know, very, very small number of transactions. They're hard to get to. They're hard to distribute to. They're a big headache for customer service. 
Uh, and so they put like just reams of barriers, you know, paperwork and red tape and six months worth of income statements. And, oh, we'll come to you or we'll send a consultant to you to kind of see if, you know, we can plug in a card machine. Like they, it just was deliberately made difficult. Whereas we've said like, if you cut all of these barriers away, um, this is a, this is an incredibly important part of the economy. So yeah, it's a, it's just great to be part of that story. Now, now, who's driving that purpose in the business? Like, who is is that coming from the brand team? Where is that purpose drive coming? No, it's come from the founders. You know, the um, the the four founders of Yoko, you know, four South African guys, um, are all very purpose driven. They were from day one. I mean, they Yoko is a vehicle for for a problem which they were trying to solve, which is you know largely around financial exclusion, and um, it was almost like Yoko as a as a brand and a product is a manifestation of of those four guys' purpose, and and we are still built the same way. And everything from the internal values that we have as a company and how we operate with each other and how we work with each other to how we project ourselves out into the world and how we treat our customers is all extremely purpose driven. From and it's and that's what makes it such a great place to work. You know, purpose is just so great for internal uh, employee branding, for external branding. It's and it's not a branding job when it's built into your DNA um, and you feel it. You know, when you walk into Yoko, either as a customer or an external person or as an employee, like you, you get a feeling that it's uh, it's it's people are getting up to do a job which they really genuinely care about and they genuinely care about their customers. Um, and that's great, you know, and it's quite rare, I think. Mm, I fully agree. I think it's, it's, I think brand and purpose are the two differentiators that, that if companies click onto them, they're such an unfair advantage. It, it takes time and energy, but in the long term, it's such an unfair advantage against other companies. Um, yep. You know, and I think yours is a, a great example of, in theory, Yoko shouldn't exist because if one of the big banks decided to compete with, you know, if they decided a long time ago to build a product like yours with the reach they have and the spend they have, in theory, they should be able to squash you overnight. But the equity that Yoko has built up would make it almost impossible for them to do that. And I think also being purpose-driven means that your product is ultimately probably always going to be one or two or three or four or 10 steps ahead of whatever they build because they don't understand that it's not it's not the core of what they're doing and therefore their product will never compete on a on a one-to-one -one basis with, with customers yeah it's like you know this isn't a problem that you can throw tons of money at and succeed at. it's like for example some of the banks before yoko came around they did try and do this actually um, there was products which were which are incredibly similar to the Yoko product, which have been which have been launched by the big banks in South Africa, but they just don't have the obsession with this segment that we have. Like they don't eat and breathe and talk to small businesses on a daily basis, and are obsessed with fixing problems. And therefore, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the world and how big or deep your pockets are. Like you're not going to succeed if you don't have that sort of passion that drives a pretty small group of very dedicated people, right? I mean, it's not 
100 people isn't a big organization in South Africa when you mm. compare it to the banks in particular. But it's amazing what a small group of very dedicated people can do who are very purpose-driven and have like this very clear North Star that they're getting up in the morning for. And whether you're in the brand team or you're in the support team or whether you're completely behind the scenes in finance, everyone feels the same way. And I think that mm. is so magic, right? It's like there is so little in many respects, like being the head of brand in a place like Yoko is, an, is the dream job. Because you don't have to internally sell anything. You aren't, you aren't telling some mm-hmm. kind of story. You're not trying to like get a fancy copywriter to write you a script and to tell a story. Like you're not actually. Like it's written itself. And when you combine that story with just projecting what your customers are saying to you on a daily basis and telling their stories, it's like it's a real magical little mix there. That's that's so good to hear. Um I want to I want to just change tack for a little bit because I'm interested, you know, by the looks of your marketing, if you were to take it from an outsider's perspective, you know, it looks like you have a big agency working for you, you know, kind of doing amazing creative, but that's that's not actually the case. Can you talk a little bit about your team and how you actually go about building all of this work and and using kind of a network of of people to help you deliver? Uh, work on a on a, a scale bigger than what your budget actually allows. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah, it's been a it's been a journey on this regard. I mean, I think that um, I came in to the job with quite a traditional mindset. You know, having worked for SAB and FIFA and these big organisations where you just work with the best creative agencies in the country and you and you become good at briefing and that's what you become good at. You do you write a really good brief and then you let like all of those guys do all the whole work, all the guys and girls. And, um, and at Yoko, we just had no money for that. Like, it was impossible. If I just looked at what the account management uh, at an agency would cost me, like, that would be my budget. And I knew that there was just no way to go to work with, with, uh, with fantastic creatives like from a, that were in a traditional agency model. So we often uh, look for partners who are similar to us. We find that that's the best way to get good collaboration going. So, you know, whether they're commercial partners or people like agency partners, like really small, hungry, uh, little agencies, or even groups of freelancers who have like this mindset, which is like, I'm going to do the best work possible on the smallest budget. And I'm going to think a lot about smart ways to get big bang for buck. And I'm going to think a lot about distribution of that content and how to actually break through the noise that's out there. That That's like where the best combination happens for us. So we did build up a fairly uh, decent sized in what we could be called an in-house agency team, you know, literally had like ECDs from ex creative agencies, fantastic copywriters, really smart people. And before COVID, that's how we were running. We were, mostly in-house with a bit of a almost in-house agency process where you know the brand team would brief the creative studio and the creative studio would do the work and like would revert back so it, it felt like a like the best kind of agency relationship where like you're sitting with each other you are doing a lot of ideation together but there is also like a little team that is that is going away to like spend their days thinking about some of the the magic stuff um, and it was working extremely well we were also tapping into external freelancers and small agencies from across the country who we loved the work that they were doing and we could we could like afford the fact that they came with very small like uh foundational costs so they were but it was more about mindset like 
So we did work with them on a campaign style basis, but we would never sign a long-term contract with anyone or do a retainer. And then post COVID where, you know, just like everyone else, we were just severely impacted um, from a people standpoint. Um, I'm, I unfortunately lost the vast majority of that in-house creative team. Um, and I'm now down to an extremely small brand team. And we have now had to figure out new models again, where we can't even afford the small hungry creative agencies, you know, who are between 10 and 20 people big. We literally can afford, we will go to a editor or a director or a animator and we'll try and pull these people together. And we have like an in-house person in my team who is the producer, effectively the content creator. And he will literally like go out into the marketplace and find people to work with. And we will have to do largely the, the scripting and the thinking in-house but we use really smart individual people who, who also have great networks to try and bring it all together because we can't do that in-house anymore. And it does work. It's not without its challenges, I must say. And, um, and you know, of course, like I would love to, to have the, the luxury of, uh, of having like the best minds in the country together working with me on a long-term basis. But I don't think that's how it's going to work very much anymore. I think that Unless you're extremely like in the top one percent in terms of gigantic budgets, you can afford that kind of stuff. It's going to be much more hacky and much more hands-on. And I think a lot of it comes down to like the braveness of the work that you're willing to do. If you're willing to be brave and to commit to a small number of things, not spread everything too thin, to sacrifice, 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 and then commit, and on that big thing, go big on it and be bold with it then I think you can do it in a very uh, small, agile uh, community almost of freelancers model. Um, and I think good work will come from that. You know, We only just started down this journey now, but I do think there's something beautiful about the constraints that we're all currently facing and that some of the best work will come from these constraints. And I'm not sure we'll go back to the way that it ever was before. Even if my budget does get you know, increased to a pre-COVID world again, I'm not so sure I'll go back anymore. I think something shifted. And I think that mm. that's a good thing. It's a good thing for the creative industry. It's a good thing uh, for brand teams. And, and hopefully it means that we get more exciting marketing happening, actually. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I fully agree with you. I think, and uh, I suppose I'm sitting here uh, as one of the companies that wants the budget from people like you. Um, so, but I think it is those con those creativity and the constraints is a very powerful thing. And I think, in a sense, big budgets make people lazy because you just sort of blanket every every channel as much as your budget can afford. You know, you do your your sort of lazy campaigns that are kind yeah. of above the line, below the line, through the line, and we just sort of run them. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the. I think it was restart campaign. Was it yeah. restarts? Yeah. yeah, which which was from the outside, it looked very well put together. Like you'd spent a lot of time and budget on that, but from what I understand from you, it was actually slightly different. Yeah, I mean that was the smell of an oil rag. Eh? That was like really, we had no money for that, and. You know, I think the the freelancers we worked with did an amazing job on it. Um, we also agonized over it internally. I mean, like hours and hours of rescripting and rethinking and finding like 
the perfect image for just a little sequence and then multiple of those. And, and I mean, it, it was a bit of a labor of love because we had so little money to spend on it. So look, there's, there's a cost attached to all of our internal time as well. Right. And mm. I mean, that's a cost, which obviously is much harder to, to peg down on a piece of paper, but there's no doubt that like some of the work takes longer nowadays. And that therefore I think there's this mentality of, you know, really like sacrificing and really committing on the big things because, um, Otherwise, it's super hard to break the curve of indifference where like 90% of everything is people just indifferent towards it because it's not, you know, you've got to be a bit polarizing at times. And I think that's what we, we're realizing is to have that very challenger style mindset, you've got to have big ideas. Like ideas become the center of really everything. Like if the idea is big enough and bold enough, then it's worth putting your effort behind it, even if it's small amounts of money. Um, because yeah, nothing like nothing kills creativity faster than a blank check. I think that's like such a true thing. It's it really is. Um, uh, yeah, this is the new paradigm. I think a little. Well, Matt, uh, I think we're at our, our time cap now. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I I love the world and the brand that you created. One where it's it's sort of purpose driven, um, putting people or customers at the center of it, and kind of creating something from a place of passion not necessarily using huge budgets, but creating things that ultimately make a difference in people's lives. Because I think that's what brand building is all about and it's what long-term commitment and emotional connection come from. So, so thank you very much and I look forward to watching your work in the future. Thank you, Ross. been really fun to talk. Don't often get a chance to talk like this about, uh, about you know, the work that we do and uh, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you very much. Yeah, so, so I was saying to you on the, on the pre-call that I did an informal survey of South African brands that people love and, and I think the Yoko name came up quite consistently and I find that interesting because it's one of the few new brands that people have a, an affinity towards. So I think whatever you guys are doing there, it's, it's, it's working and it's actually connecting to people. So, so thank you very much and we'll catch you in the next one. Thank you. Been fantastic. Bye bye. Cheers, Russ. Thanks a lot, man. Bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.